Amen. Amen. Some traditions would have you stand for the sermon, but I'm going to allow you to sit. And as you do so, uh, we dismiss our children with a blessing. We're so glad you're here. They're uh, going to Children's Church if they'd like, if you'd like them to. And we are going to look at this brief but powerful passage. Uh, we are launching today a, a new series through the book of First Peter, and we're going to hone in today just on these first, uh, some of the first few verses, three, uh, three to five. I want to, again, thank the musicians after that rousing version of that uh, the third song that they did, a kind of a classic that they updated. I'm wondering if we're going to do line dancing over at the party afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? Let me pray for us, and then we're going to walk through this. Father, we thank you for your immense love for us in Jesus, that you have given us your Son, your only begotten Son, to die on the cross so that we would not die eternally, to erase our sins so that we would not be erased but embraced by you. And we thank you today in particular with Christians around the world and throughout the ages that you raised Christ from the grave, that he has been vindicated, that he is at your right hand. And God, now we pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to see Jesus, to love Him, to follow Him, and to know how much He loves and cares for us. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We all come this morning with a, a bucket load of wishes. Now, hope can sometimes seem like, again, like wishing or wishful thinking. And I, I sometimes see people wishing for things when they're um, at the convenience store. They're, they're hoping that they win the lottery. Now, I will tell you that I was recently on a, on a conference call with some pastors, actually quite recently, and uh, one of them shared a story, and he insisted that it's absolutely true, and I believe him. I know him. He said that uh, not that long ago, he was in Las Vegas. Now, I don't know why he was there. He might have been at a conference or preaching on the corner or preaching in a casino, but he just happened to go in and play a few slot machines. I think he had like a 50 or or $100 limit, and he said he drove home with a wad full of cash totaling $29,000, and he wasn't kidding. Now, most of the guys on the call were saying, what was it like to drive with that much money? I asked him, did you tithe on it? <laughs> and he said, without missing a beat, absolutely he did. So that could be called hope that goes ka-ching. <laughs> but we have more important and personal kinds of hopes here this morning. Hope for health for ourselves and for our loved ones. Hope that our adult children will walk with the Lord, or if they're no longer doing so, that they will walk back to Him. Hope that our, our children will do well in college, <laughs> that they will thrive spiritually, and that our little ones will be physically safe, and that they too will thrive in knowing the Lord. Perhaps we hope for a good Christian spouse for our kids or for ourselves. I don't hope for that, I already have one. <laughs> or we 
simply hope to retain the wonderful life that we're right now enjoying. We don't want it to slip away. On a more macro level, we want more rain for the West, for California in particular. We want less crime and certainly less inflation. And I think all of us are hoping, beyond hope, that Russia will not unleash World War III. So we come in this morning with all sorts of jangled hopes and dreams, many of them that are legitimate, that are mixed with prayers. But today, friends, we joyously affirm that hope that we're dealing with here is not crossing our fingers or, or wishing for a better outcome or hoping for something at the end of the rainbow or relying on Lady Luck to help us hit the jackpot or hit a hole in one. It's not that kind of hope. You see, whereas mere optimism banks on the fact that things or the hope that things will only get better, biblical hope latches on to God's promises that God will work out all things better than we can ever imagine, even when our circumstances seem to be going south. And so much of 1 Peter is about that. It is about hope in the midst of suffering. But God will work things out. He has promised to do so, and He has proven His promises in the death and in the resurrection of His Son. You see, worldly hope is linked to maybe or maybe not. I mean, we've all had scenarios in the past few weeks. Well, maybe, maybe not. We're not sure. Circumstances could change. But biblical hope is not merely sunny optimism. It is not a wish. But rather, it is a future-oriented certainty that is rooted in what God has already done in the past. Friends, it is a confident affirmation that God will faithfully complete in this world and in us what He has already begun. God said to His people through the prophet Jeremiah, and many of you know this verse well, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. And God's plan for that wonderful future, it's not vague, it has come into the present. In the life, in the death, in the resurrection, in the victory over death of Jesus Christ. And we need this in the age that we're living in. It's, it's been called so often, though it's hyper-religious our age and, and very spiritual in many ways, it's still being referred to as a secular age. And the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, many of you read him in college or high school, he predicted in 1883 this. He said, alas, the time is coming when man will no longer shoot the arrow of his longing beyond man. In other words, everything will begin to close in on ourselves, on this, what is called this imminent frame, this world in which we live. We won't look beyond. 
our horizons will begin to shrink in on ourselves. And this is happening. And so what do we do? Well, people look to politicians. Well, you think we'd learn on that one. <laughs> or perhaps Elon Musk will save democracy. Or if you're coming from another perspective, he will hasten its demise. But Easter announces that the arrow of our longing does shoot beyond. It points to the one who entered space and time to annihilate our sin, not to annihilate us, but to annihilate our wrongdoing and to renovate us, to resurrect us. You see, Jesus rose to incorruptible life in order to make us truly alive, friends, in him. And so when the light of the world burst forth from that tomb, he was opening the door to living hope. That's what has struck me as I've been working on this passage. It's easy to miss. It's living hope. And that presupposes that so much of the hope in this world is dead on arrival or it doesn't last long, or it doesn't come to fruition, but this has and it will. And we really need this living hope, don't we? A number of you have read, I read it just this week, that according to a new CDC study from 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel, quote, persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness has risen from 26% to 44%. And this is the highest number ever recorded. And as I look back to my high school years, I knew that I desperately needed the hope of Jesus because I had my moments. And I need him just as much today. We all do. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to look simply at the source of our hope, the subject, or you could call it the substance of our hope, and the realization, the full realization of our hope. First, the source of our hope. This tells us that biblical hope is not simply different in degree from the hope of the world, or worldly hope, but it is different in kind entirely. Again, it is far more than wishful thinking. But hope is the strong confidence that God will do what he has promised. And what has he promised? Well, again, we'll see more in a moment on the substance and subject of that hope. But here what he has promised is to open, he has promised to open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds to actually put our hope in Jesus. Peter here in the beginning puts a good word in for the God of all creation, the God of our, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is called, this is actually a song of praise. It's not simply a theological treatise. It is a song like we have been singing so beautifully this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to His great mercy, 
not according to anything he forced on us because of our smarts, because of our enlightenment, but because of his uncoerced kindness. Because of his unearned love and overflowing favor, he has caused us to be born again. We're born anew to a living hope. So yes, friends, we must exercise faith. We must respond to the evidence that that Christ, in fact, has actually risen. This week, and I've preached on this for many years, it's been exciting and fun to read again all of the evidence for the risen Christ. But at the end of the day, this is not something that we merely assent to. Hope is not self-generated. No, Peter says, our Heavenly Father regenerates us to latch on to the risen Christ. Jesus, in an interaction with a religious leader, Nicodemus, in John 3, he said to this man who was inquiring in the night, he came to meet with Jesus, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. It's opaque to you. It makes no sense. And Nicodemus is incredulous. He says, well, how can a a man who has grown go into his mother's womb again and be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time and go through this process? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we can't see, we can't enter, or in the language of 1 Peter, we cannot hope without the regenerating work of God through his Spirit. And so today, friends, I encourage you to receive the gift of hope in Christ. Don't blow this off. Don't put it off. Now, perhaps your frame of reference needs to be changed. You you have a hard time accepting that, that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead because dead people don't tend to rise. And this is not just a problem that modern people struggle with. It was a problem that ancient people struggled with too. You have a hard time buying this because your priors say, your prior commitment or bias says, no way, that doesn't fit my frame of reference. And Peter, who wrote this letter, thought the same way. He was constantly, we have just seen through our series through the Gospel of Mark, he was constantly befuddled by Jesus' predictions that he must die and then would rise again. This whole way of explaining frame of references and biases and priors has been explained this way. There is a psychiatrist that was meeting with a man. And the man was convinced he was dead. And the psychiatrist tried all of these different ways to convince the man that he wasn't. You know, they were talking, they were interacting. Here the man was. And the man said, no matter what, no, no, I'm dead. And so then the psychiatrist came up with an idea and he said, would you accept the premise 
that dead people do not bleed. Now, if there are any doctors here, that can get a little technical. Well, you know, soon after you're dead, you don't tend to bleed a lot. And so the patient said, well, yeah, I accept that. That premise makes sense. I buy that, of course. And so the psychiatrist then pulled out a needle from his pocket, and he said to the patient, would you allow me to, to prick just a little bit your thumb? And then the, the patient said, certainly, you can do that. And so he pricked the man's thumb, and it began to bleed. And the man said, oh, my gosh, aha, I guess dead people do bleed after all. You see, the evidence couldn't change his mind because he was committed to this prior belief. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus is constantly encountering in the New Testament. Show us a sign, they demand. And he says, this wicked and evil generation demands a sign. I will give you one, the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and then was spit out. And Jesus is saying there, I will be in the tomb for three days and I will rise. But many of you still, despite that evidence, will not believe. Their frame of reference had to be changed. And boy, for Peter was it. He went through a major paradigm shift. He began to see that, that Jesus didn't fit the usual pattern because he was so unusual, unique. The great singularity of God. This so struck me this week in, in Luke 24, upon hearing the reports of the empty tomb, the skeptical Peter, as the women shared what had happened, uh, that the angels had told them that Christ had risen, were told that Peter rose and ran. He ran to the tomb. Could it be? Is it too good to be true? You see, his biases, his priors were changing. They were melting away. The Spirit was changing his framework. And what was happening with Peter must and can and will happen with us. You see, the power of God that brought forth through a word that brought forth all of creation summoned Jesus from the grave. And now it speaks to you and me. It summons us from death to believe in the risen Jesus. We're going to see in a few weeks in 1 Peter 1, verses 23 to 25, that it's the Word of God that literally brings forth life in us, that causes us to believe that Jesus is who He said He was. Peter says it's simply the good news that was preached to you. So friends, God ignites hope within us. This is the hope that He's given. And even if it's just a flicker, put it into practice and then seek Him for more hope. The great reformer John Calvin said that we should ask God to increase our hope when it is small, awaken it when it is dormant, confirm it when it is wavering, Strengthen it when it is weak and raise it up when it's overthrown. I've had moments even in the past few weeks where I've had to put that into practice. 
Sometimes our hope is weak, and sometimes even by our circumstances, it feels utterly overwhelmed and overthrown. So ask God to raise it up again, and he will. God is the, the, the source of our hope. And now we look at the subject, the substance of our hope. Peter says that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Notice, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now notice it mentions death. The Bible never leaves behind the atoning death of Jesus. We, we focused on this so powerfully on Good Friday. But I want to say just a few things about it here. In verse 2, which we did not read at the start of this letter, it mentions what defines us is that God has called us. We are called exiles of God. God's people called out in this, from this world. And Peter mentions that we are those who have experienced the sprinkling of his blood. The Bible never leaves that theme. You see, what this means is briefly that God has lovingly put himself in our place because we so proudly put ourselves in his place all the time. And at its root, sin is our failure to love the first thing first, our failure to love God with all that we are supremely, and our failure to love others as ourselves. We saw this recently in the Gospel of Mark. Now, I came upon one way of expressing this when I read uh, a roundtable of some movie producers and directors and actors. And uh, some of you know who Maggie Gyllenhaal or Gyllenhaal is, and, and it was this roundtable discussion, and, and a phrase that she threw out really caught my eye. She said, honesty is electrifying. And she's right. And then she said, I think, as she was talking about her writing and the shows she's working on, she said, I think all of us have aspects of cruelty, perversity, strangeness, and darkness, as well as friendliness. <laughs> and I thought, man, is she like reading John Calvin or, or Paul, the apostle in Romans? No, she's just being honest. And the thing is, these traits they're not ultimately electrifying, but to God and to ourselves and to others, they are horrifying. The twisted thoughts, the unloving words, the dark things that we sometimes say to people or think about them. And Peter himself experienced this inward perversity and darkness and even cruelty when he denied his friend and his savior three times, when somebody confronted, the slave girl confronted Peter, hey, you were with him, you know him. And Peter said no, denied him three times. And then friends, we can think about ourselves. Have we ever receded like Peter from the opportunities that God has given to share our faith? Yes, I have. I can think of the times that I have kept quiet when others have been railing against the Christian faith. And I've even, and I'm ashamed to say it, I've even done that in my own home when I've had guests in my home. And people feel quite confident to speak against Christianity. And I think, yeah, I'll keep the peace today. And then I think of Peter. 
but how much with poignancy Peter must have written the words that we will see later in this letter. Jesus ransomed us from our foolish ways, our failures to love God, our failures to stick up for Jesus and the gospel of Christ. How Peter must have felt the mercy of Jesus when he wrote, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree and by his wounds, we, by his wounds, I am healed. And you see, this then moves to the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that Christ rose victorious, bursting the bonds of the tomb, having absorbed the full curse of the law and meeting and meriting the blessings of life. Jesus was vindicated. And therefore, death could not hold him. He left the tomb as the glorified Son of God and yet still fully human in our flesh, yet transformed, glorified, never able to die again. And friends, this means the burden of our sin and our shame are loosed by the cross and then consumed by the empty tomb. And Christ has made us new people who are truly becoming more and more human, truly authentic, more patient and kind and gentle and courageous and sacrificial. We certainly fall short of those things, but Peter will go on to explain in the letter that that's how God in the risen Christ was changing him and can and will change us. So now we look finally at the full realization of our hope, where it's all heading. You see, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, God has raised us. It's an inheritance that is undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This inheritance that we receive from God through Jesus' resurrection is kept for us, even as we are kept for it. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life. And, and friends, we have everything now to live for, including a glorious future in heaven. But it's a future that has already been set in, mo in motion. It can't spoil. It can't fade away. It is beyond the reach of change and decay. You know, there's a lot being said right now about inflation. <laughs> and I think that a number of us have concerns about our earnings, our savings, what maybe someday we might receive or pass on and what it'll end up being because of inflation, what eats it away. But this says our inheritance in heaven cannot be diminished. It means the vision of the Old Testament of Isaiah will come true. It means that the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat and the little child will lead them. It means, as the end of Isaiah says, that we can be glad and rejoice forever in that which God creates. For behold, He has created Jerusalem to be a joy. 
What awaits us is that the world will be transformed into a city garden with God and our Savior Jesus Christ at the center. There will be no more inflation, no more struggles with the inadequate water, no loss of parents or grandparents or children, no droughts, and certainly no war. You see, the salvation that is to be revealed is simply more of Christ and more of our life in Him, perfect friendship and completed communion. And it means He will renew everything, including our bodies that will be patterned after His glorified and risen body. You know, I got some medical news uh, this week, many of you know, through the church prayer request, and it wasn't what I had hoped for. I had high hopes, but it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And it reminded me that at times you cannot feel your need for this living hope until you've had your hopes let down by this life. And many of us have. Now my temporary hopes are back up. I'm getting retested next week. I'm right back at it, and I'm not giving up. But my hope is not in medical progress. My hope is in the risen Jesus, and yours must be as well. There's a character in a movie, his name was Simon Birch, who said time is a monster that cannot be reasoned with. And that's true. And time is ticking away for all of us, even for us who are young. I count myself in that group. And so we need to look to living hope. Now, this was brought home to me in a very poignant way, um, in a comical way. Liz and I were in Idaho a few months ago, and we were driving to the airport, and our Uber driver was very uh, vocal, and he was telling us stories and I say this with great respect, but he, he looked to be on the older side. He was healthy, but he was older. And he began to talk about that he was a hippie, a flower child in Southern California way back in the 60s, 50s. And, and he was talking away about his view of life. And he said, I think that basically I agree with my teacher who taught us evolution in high school. We're just from primordial ooze and life ends. And I thought, well, you know, this is making me a little nervous, this guy's view of life. And then he began to share some more, and he said, do you know how old I am? As he was looking in the rearview mirror and driving on the freeway there in Boise, racing to the airport, and I said, no, he said, I'm 89. <laughs> now, I actually, I was looking at him, and I thought, nah, he's 89, he's not lying. <laughs> and, and then he began to talk a little more, and he got very excited. Now, I'm telling you, this was his excitement, his investments in pot farms, in marijuana farms. And I leaned over to Liz and I thought, he wants us to buy shares in his pot farm. This is what excited this guy. And so as I was driving to the airport and he was explaining this and he was starting to weave a little bit and I thought, no, no offense against you in your late 80s who drive Uber, but I saw my life flashing before my eyes a little bit. Time is a monster that can't be reasoned with. But in these moments when life starts to speed up, we are supposed to be comforted by the fact that the risen Christ has us 
and will never let us go. He has been vindicated. And so hold on to him with all that you are because he holds on to you with all that he is. He is your living hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us when our hope is weak, that you would strengthen us. God, awaken our hope when it is dormant. Confirm it when it is wavering. And raise it up when it is overthrown. And Father, if there are any here today who do not have hope in Christ, we pray that you would give this great gift. We thank you that he died and that he rose again. And that when our temporary hopes let us down, when science, when politicians, when friends and families, even the beloved things of this life fade away, we thank you that your promises will never fade that you have promised us welfare and goodness and a future, and that welfare and future is the risen Jesus. Help us to hold on to him with all that we have because he holds on to us with all that he has. And that is our comfort, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.